This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Nicholas James Bridgewater. Chapter 20, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2. The awful mysteries of the Christian faith and worship were concealed from the eyes of strangers, and even of catechumens, with an affected secrecy which served to excite their wonder and curiosity. But the severe rules of discipline which the prudence of the bishops had instituted were relaxed by the same prudence in favour of an imperial proselyte, whom it was so important to allure by every gentle condescension into the pale of the church and Constantine was permitted, at least by a tacit dispensation, to enjoy most of the privileges before he had contracted any of the obligations of a Christian. Instead of retiring from the congregation, when the voice of the deacon dismissed the profane multitude, he prayed with the faithful, disputed with the bishops, preached on the most sublime and intricate subjects of theology, celebrated with sacred rites the vigil of Easter, and publicly declared himself not only a partaker, but in some measure a priest and hierophant of the Christian mysteries. The pride of Constantine might assume, and his services had deserved, some extraordinary distinction, and ill-time rigour might have blasted the unripened fruits of his conversion, and if the doors of the church had been strictly closed against the prince, who had deserted the altars of the gods, the master of the empire would have been left destitute of any form of religious worship. In his last visit to Rome, he piously disclaimed and insulted the superstition of his ancestors, by refusing to lead the military procession of the equestrian order, and to offer the public vows to the Jupiter of the Capitoline Hill. Many years before his baptism and death, Constantine had proclaimed to the world that neither his person nor his image should ever more be seen within the walls of an idolatrous temple, while he distributed throughout the provinces a variety of medals and pictures which represented the emperor in a humble and suppliant posture of Christian devotion. The pride of Constantine, who refused the privileges of a catechumen, cannot easily be explained or excused, but the delay of his baptism may be justified by the maxims and the practice of ecclesiastical antiquity. The sacrament of baptism was regularly administered by the bishop himself, with his assistant clergy, in the cathedral church of the diocese, during the fifty days between the solemn festivals of Easter and Pentecost, and this holy term admitted a numerous band of infants and adult persons into the bosom of the church. The discretion of parents often suspended the baptism of their children till they could understand the obligations which they contracted. The severity of ancient bishops exacted from the new converts a novitiate of two or three years, and the catechumens themselves, from different motives of a temporal or spiritual nature, were seldom impatient to assume the character of perfect and initiated Christians. The sacrament of baptism was supposed to contain a full and absolute expiation of sin, and the soul was instantly restored to its original purity, and entitled to the promise of eternal salvation. Among the proselytes of Christianity there are many who judged it imprudent to precipitate a salutary rite which could not be repeated, to throw away 
an inestimable privilege which could never be recovered. By the delay of their baptism they could venture freely to indulge their passions in the enjoyments of the world, while they still retained in their own hands the means of a sure and easy absolution. The sublime theory of the gospel had made a much fainter impression on the heart than on the understanding of Constantine himself. He pursued the great object of his ambition through the dark, bloody paths of war and policy, and after the victory he abandoned himself, without moderation, to the abuse of his fortune. Instead of asserting his just superiority above the imperfect heroism and profane philosophy of Trajan and the Antonines, the mature age of Constantine forfeited the reputation which he had acquired in his youth. As he gradually advanced in the knowledge of truth, he proportionately declined in the practice of virtue, and the same year of his reign, in which he convened the Council of Nice, was polluted by the execution, or rather murder, of his eldest son. The date is alone sufficient to refute the ignorant and malicious suggestions of Zosimus, who affirms that after the death of Crispus, the remorse of his father, accepted from the ministers of Christianity, the expiation which he had vainly solicited from the pagan pontiffs. At the time of the death of Crispus, the emperor could no longer hesitate in the choice of a religion. He could no longer be ignorant that the church was possessed of an infallible remedy, though he chose to defer the application of it till the approach of death had removed the temptation and danger of a relapse. The bishops whom he summoned in his last illness to the palace of Nicomedia, were edified by the fervour with which he requested and received the sacrament of baptism, by the solemn protestation that the remainder of his life should be worthy of a disciple of Christ, and by his humble refusal to wear the imperial purple after he had been clothed in the white garment of a neophyte. The example and reputation of Constantine seemed to countenance the delay of baptism. Future tyrants were encouraged to believe that the innocent blood which they might shed in a long reign would instantly be washed away in the waters of regeneration, and the abuse of religion dangerously undermine the foundations of moral virtue. The gratitude of the Church has exalted the virtues and excused the failings of a generous patron, who seated Christianity on the throne of the Roman world, and the Greeks, who celebrated the festival of the imperial saint, seldom mention the name of Constantine without adding the title of equal to the apostles. Such a comparison, if it allude to the character of those divine missionaries, must be imputed to the extravagance of impious flattery. But if the parallel be confined to the extent and number of their evangelic victories, the success of Constantine might perhaps equal that of the apostles themselves. By the edicts of toleration he removed the temporal disadvantages which had hitherto retarded the progress of Christianity, and its active and numerous ministers received a free permission, a liberal encouragement, to recommend the salutary truths of revelation by every argument which could affect the reason or piety of mankind. The exact balance of the two religions continued but a moment, and the piercing eye of ambition and avarice soon discovered that the profession of Christianity might contribute to the interest of the present as well as of a future life. The hopes of wealth and honours, the example of an emperor, his exhortations, his irresistible smiles, 
diffused conviction among the venal and obsequious crowds which usually filled the apartments of a palace. The cities which signalized a forward zeal by the voluntary destruction of their temples were distinguished by municipal privileges and rewarded with popular denotives, and the new capital of the East gloried in the singular advantage that Constantinople was never profaned by the worship of idols. As the lower ranks of society are governed by imitation, the conversion of those who possessed any eminence of birth, of power, or of riches was soon followed by dependent multitudes. The salvation of the common people was purchased at an easy rate, if it be true that in one year twelve thousand men were baptized at Rome, besides a proportionate number of women and children, and that a white garment with twenty pieces of gold had been promised by the emperor to every convert. The powerful influence of Constantine was not circumscribed by the narrow limits of his life, or of his dominions. The education which he bestowed on his sons and nephews secured to the empire a race of princes whose faith was still more lively and sincere, as they imbibed in their earliest infancy the spirit, or at least the doctrine, of Christianity. War and commerce had spread the knowledge of the gospel beyond the confines of the Roman provinces, and the barbarians, who had disdained a humble and proscribed sect, soon learned to esteem a religion which had been so lately embraced by the greatest monarch and the most civilized nation of the globe. The Goths and Germans, who enlisted under the standard of Rome, revered the cross which glittered at the head of the legions, and their fierce countrymen received at the same time the lessons of faith and of humanity. The kings of Iberia and Armenia worshipped the god of their protector, and their subjects, who had invariably preserved the name of Christians, soon formed a sacred and perpetual connection with their Roman brethren. The Christians of Persia were suspected in time of war of preferring their religion to their country, but as long as peace subsisted between the two empires, the persecuting spirit of the Magi was effectually restrained by the interposition of Constantine. The rays of the gospel illuminated the coast of India. The colonies of Jews, who had penetrated into Arabia and Ethiopia, opposed the progress of Christianity, where the labor of the missionaries was in some measure facilitated by a previous knowledge of the Mosaic Revelation, and Abyssinia still reveres the memory of Frumentius, who in the time of Constantine devoted his life to the conversion of those sequestered regions. Under the reign of his son Constantius, Theophilus, who was himself of Indian extraction, was invested with the double character of ambassador and bishop. He embarked on the Red Sea with two hundred horses of the purest breed of Cappadocia, which were sent by the emperor to the prince of the Sibians, or Homerites. Theophilus was entrusted with many other useful or curious presents, which might raise the admiration and conciliate the friendship of the barbarians, and he successfully employed several years in a pastoral visit to the churches of the Torrid Zone. The irresistible power of the Roman emperors was displayed in the important and dangerous change of the national religion. The terrors of a military force silenced the faint and unsupported murmurs of the pagans, and there was reason to expect that the cheerful submission of the Christian clergy, as well as people, would be the result of conscience and gratitude. It was long since established, as a fundamental maxim of the Roman constitution, 
that every rank of citizens was alike subject to the laws, and that the care of religion was the right as well as duty of the civil magistrate. Constantine and his successors could not easily persuade themselves that they had forfeited by their conversion any branch of the imperial prerogatives, or that they were incapable of giving laws to a religion which they had protected and embraced. The emperors still continued to exercise a supreme jurisdiction over the ecclesiastical order, and the sixteenth book of the Theodosian Code represents, under a variety of titles, the authority which they assumed in the government of the Catholic Church. But the distinction of the spiritual and temporal powers, which had never been imposed on the free spirit of Greece and Rome, was introduced and confirmed by the legal establishment of Christianity. The office of supreme pontiff, which from the time of Numa to that of Augustus, had always been exercised by one of the most eminent of the senators, was at length united to the imperial dignity. The first magistrate of the state, as often as he was prompted by superstition or policy, performed with his own hands the sacerdotal functions, nor was there any order of priests, either at Rome or in the provinces, who claimed a more sacred character among men, or a more intimate communication with the gods. But in the Christian church, which entrusts the service of the altar to a perpetual succession of consecrated ministers, the monarch, whose spiritual rank is less honourable than that of the meanest deacon, was seated below the rails of the sanctuary, and confounded with the rest of the faithful multitude. The emperor might be saluted as the father of his people, but he owed a filial duty and reverence to the fathers of the church, and the same marks of respect which Constantine had paid to the persons of saints and confessors were soon exacted by the pride of the episcopal order. A secret conflict between the civil and ecclesiastical jurisdictions embarrassed the operation of the Roman government, and a pious emperor was alarmed by the guilt and danger of touching with a profane hand the Ark of the Covenant. The separation of men into the two orders of the clergy and of the laity was indeed familiar to many nations of antiquity, and the priests of India, of Persia, of Assyria, of Judea, of Ethiopia, of Egypt, and of Gaul, derived from a celestial origin the temporal power and possessions which they had acquired. These venerable institutions had gradually assimilated themselves to the manners and governments of their respective countries, but the opposition or contempt of the civil power served to cement the discipline of the primitive church. The Christians had been obliged to elect their own magistrates, to raise and distribute a peculiar revenue, and to regulate the internal policy of their republic by a code of laws which were ratified by the consent of the people and the practice of three hundred years. When Constantine embraced the faith of the Christians, he seemed to contract a perpetual alliance with a distinct and independent society, and the privileges granted or confirmed by that emperor, or by his successors, were accepted not as the precarious favours of the court, but as the just and inalienable rights of the ecclesiastical order. The Catholic Church was administered by the spiritual and legal jurisdiction of eighteen hundred bishops, of whom one thousand were seated in the Greek, and eight hundred in the Latin provinces of the empire. The extent and boundaries of their respective dioceses had been variously and accidentally decided by the zeal and success of the first missionaries, by the wishes of the people, and by the propagation of the gospel. 
Episcopal churches were closely planted along the banks of the Nile, on the sea coast of Africa, in the proconsular Asia, and through the southern provinces of Italy. The bishops of Gaul and Spain, of Thrace and Pontus, reigned over an ample territory, and delegated their royal suffragans to execute the subordinate duties of the pastoral office. A Christian diocese might be spread over a province, or reduced to a village, but all the bishops possessed an equal and indelible character. They all derived the same powers and privileges from the apostles, from the people, and from the laws, while the civil and military professions were separated by the policy of Constantine, a new and perpetual order of ecclesiastical ministers, always respectable, sometimes dangerous, was established by the church and state. The important review of their station and attributes may be distributed under the following heads. 1. Popular election. 2. Ordination of the clergy. 3. Property. 4. Civil jurisdiction. 5. Spiritual censures. 6. Exercise of public oratory. 7. Privilege of legislative assemblies in the East and the West. 1. The freedom of election subsisted long after the legal establishment of Christianity, and the subjects of Rome enjoyed in the Church the privilege which they had lost in the Republic, of choosing the magistrates whom they were bound to obey. As soon as a bishop had closed his eyes, the Metropolitan issued a commission to one of his suffragans to administer the vacant see, and prepare, within a limited time, the future election. The right of voting was vested in the inferior clergy, who were best qualified to judge of the merit of the candidates. In the senators or nobles of the city, all those who were distinguished by their rank or property, and finally in the whole body of the people, who on the appointed day flocked in multitudes from the most remote parts of the diocese, and sometimes silenced by their tumultuous acclamations, the voice of reason and the laws of discipline. These acclamations might accidentally fix on the head of the most deserving competitor, of some ancient presbyter, some holy monk, or some layman, conspicuous for his zeal and piety. But the Episcopal chair was solicited especially in the great and opulent cities of the empire as a temporal rather than as a spiritual dignity. The interested views, the selfish and angry passions, the arts of perfidy and dissimulation, the secret corruption, the open and even bloody violence, which had formerly disgraced the freedom of election in the commonwealths of Greece and Rome, too often influenced the choice of the successors of the apostles. While one of the candidates boasted the honours of his family, a second allured his judges by the delicacies of a plentiful table, and a third, more guilty than his rivals, offered to share the plunder of the church among the accomplices of his sacrilegious hopes. The civil as well as ecclesiastical laws attempted to exclude the populace from this solemn and important transaction. The canons of ancient discipline, by requiring several episcopal qualifications of age, station, etc., restrained in some measure the indiscriminate caprice of the electors. The authority of the provincial bishops, who were assembled in the vacant church to consecrate the choice of the people, was interposed to moderate their passions and to correct their mistakes. The bishops could refuse to ordain an unworthy candidate, and the rage of contending factions sometimes accepted their impartial mediation. The submission or the resistance of the clergy and people on various occasions afforded different precedents. 
which were insensibly converted into positive laws and provincial customs but it was everywhere admitted as a fundamental maxim of religious policy that no bishop could be imposed on an orthodox church without the consent of its members the emperors as the guardians of the public peace and as the first citizens of rome and constantinople might effectually declare their wishes in the choice of a primate but those absolute monarchs respected the freedom of ecclesiastical elections and while they distributed and resumed the honours of the state and army they allowed eighteen hundred perpetual magistrates to receive their important offices from the free suffrages of the people it was agreeable to the dictates of justice that these magistrates should not desert an honourable station from which they could not be removed but the wisdom of councils endeavoured without much success to enforce the residence and to prevent the translation of bishops the discipline of the west was indeed less relaxed than that of the east but the same passions which made those regulations necessary rendered them ineffectual the reproaches which angry prelates have so vehemently urged against each other serve only to expose their common guilt and their mutual indiscretion two the bishops alone possessed the faculty of spiritual generation and this extraordinary privilege might compensate in some degree for the painful celibacy which was imposed as a virtue as a duty and at length as a positive obligation the religions of antiquity which established a separate order of priests dedicated a holy race a tribe or family to the perpetual service of the gods such institutions were founded for possession rather than conquest the children of the priests enjoyed with proud and indolent security their sacred inheritance and the fiery spirit of enthusiasm was abated by the cares the pleasures and the endearments of domestic life but the christian sanctuary was open to every ambitious candidate who aspired to its heavenly promises or temporal possessions the office of priests like that of soldiers and magistrates was strenuously exercised by those men whose temper and abilities had prompted them to embrace the ecclesiastical profession, or who had been selected by a discerning bishop as the best qualified to promote the glory and interest of the church. The bishops, till the abuse was restrained by the prudence of the laws, might constrain the reluctant and protect the distressed, and the imposition of hands forever bestowed some of the most valuable privileges of civil society the whole body of the catholic clergy more numerous perhaps than the legions was exempted by the emperors from all service private or public all municipal offices and all personal taxes and contributions which pressed on their fellow-citizens with intolerable weight and the duties of their holy profession were accepted as a full discharge of their obligations to the republic each bishop acquired an absolute and indefeasible right to the perpetual obedience of the clerk whom he ordained the clergy of each episcopal church with its dependent parishes formed a regular and permanent society and the cathedrals of constantinople and carthage maintained their peculiar establishment of five hundred ecclesiastical ministers their ranks and numbers were insensibly multiplied by the superstition of the times which introduced into the church the splendid ceremonies of a jewish or pagan temple and a long train of priests deacons subdeacons acolythes 
Exorcists, readers, singers, and doorkeepers contributed in their respective stations to swell the pomp and harmony of religious worship. The clerical name and privileges were extended to many pious fraternities who devoutly supported the ecclesiastical throne. Six hundred parabolani, or adventurers, visited the sick at Alexandria. Eleven hundred copiatoi, or grave-diggers, buried the dead at Constantinople, and the swarms of monks who arose from the Nile overspread and darkened the face of the Christian world. End of chapter 20, part 3